Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where... An historian... And a literature scholar... Tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as... Is this the chapter in which we learn the fate of the Wizard of the West? When will we get a more detailed description of goblin culture? Did we just meet our lovable animal companion? Our Mushu, if you will. Funny, isn't it? No matter what language they speak. Everyone sounds the same pull out their fingernails. Dread Emperor Fowl III, the linguist. Speaking of linguists, this is a chapter where we finally start seeing the shape of Catherine's days, the shape of the world, and really the shape of the new life she's going to be leading. We open the chapter with her getting homework, historical texts, agricultural treatises, keep an eye on that one, and languages. She talks about why the High Lords are still around, and by the end of it, she's killing a horse and raising it from the dead, which I hope doesn't become a theme or anything. I cannot imagine it would. That's, I mean, it's pretty explicitly evil. They hammer that that point home pretty hard. It does seem relatively practical (laughs) but speaking of that which is evil our epigraphs in the story which i suppose aren't always evil as the story goes on as the books continue a lot of them seem to give a glimpse into the world in new and exciting ways we see more and more the historical context to the historical figures we've grown to know and love were what they said, what they're purported to have said. And at this point in the story, the epigraph feels more, if I may, like a, a fun little joke to start it out with only a tenuous link to the events in the chapter. Sure, there was a chapter where lingualectomy came up three times, starting in the epigraph. Um, And here we have Dread Emperor Fowl III, the linguist, in the chapter where we learn words like karsum or mthethwa, but it's mostly just a joke. Ha ha, torture, which is great. Again, don't get me wrong. I just feel they develop as we go. They do, but we also spend 
a fair amount of time. I don't know offhand how many uh, exactly. A fair amount of time in the uh, heroic axioms, and those, you know, relate to an extent, but they mostly just boil down to I don't know goofing on heroes. While they do goof on heroes, no doubt, I think they do serve more than, say this quote, to hammer home something of the nature of the world. The heroic axioms really do continuously and ever more expansively demonstrate how heroes can rely on the story to see them through, can rely on the cheating hand of the gods above to, by simple chance and blessed fate, skip happily to the end while evil has to work for everything it gains. Not that I am biased. I am, of course, an impartial judge. Evil does have to work very hard. I mean, it can't be easy to pull out enough fingernails that you can know that there isn't a difference between how people sound depending on what language they speak. And that's a lot of work. That's some rigorous testing. I would dare say it's even empirical. Wow. Yep. Very good. Very good. (laughs) Uh, No, evil. Oh, my apologies. Nonetheless, for someone with an aspect relating to it coming on, for someone who I think would be willing to count herself as a great student of that in which she is interested, never magic, but that in which she has a real practical interest, Catherine is really willing to complain about all of these topics without even giving them the lightest chance. Yeah, we know what her aspects end up being, and it's, I agree, it is, the thing I kind of took away from this is that learn as an aspect must be intrinsically tied to Squire. If Cat of all people ends up with it, it must be something that regardless of who you are as a person, the story of the Squire revolves around learning it. Otherwise, Cat getting it. I mean, I, I suppose it could more relate to her teacher. I imagine not every Black Knight is as much a mentor as Black is trying to be. And that may have nudged Cat towards that uh, that aspect. But it, it does feel at odds with how she views herself at the very least. Not every Black Knight, a role famously known for getting killed by its own squire, <laughs> is as much yeah. of a mentor. Exactly, exactly. You, you get it. I really hope that doesn't happen with this relationship. Oh boy. We should probably wrap up this podcast. Oh, book six or so. I mentioned this in my brief summary, and I want to mention it again. It's not until relatively late, perhaps book three or four, I think after the loss of the Black Queen name, that we really see this come to fruition. But already in chapter six, Black is laying down, E.E. is laying down the first hints of the real project of the conquest, the simple logistical agricultural root of everything. Why should Catherine care about agricultural practice? You and I know. Our listenership, if they aren't fools who are listening before they've read the entire book, know it's all about the almighty loaf of bread. Kropotkin was right. He does tend to be. The conquest being about farmlands, the this whole conflict revolving around the breadbasket, the the being able to supply food to the empire, it definitely grounds things a bit and kind of serves as a backdrop. But I don't know. It, it's such a normal, mundane reason for a, a conflict, a war, uh, a conquest to take place, despite the fact that 
everything and everyone within the story tries to take a step back and look at a more meta level. It's uh, it's good versus evil. Sure, when it comes to heroes and villains, but at the base, people got to eat, and uh, the Empire is the Dread Empire is a bit of a mess when it comes to providing for itself. That illustrates, I think, one of the great strengths of believable fantasy. A story like Practical Guide to Evil is, of course, absolutely bonkers by any real-world estimate. You have magical people walking around who wear stories like cloaks, and good conquers evil most of the time, unless evil is really clever about it. And that's not how the world really works. We don't have the undead walking around. We don't have... uh, I keep going to different examples of undead in the story. There are a lot of undead in this story. But... (laughs) When there, when motivations, when societies, when story beats are rooted in this kind of mundane materialism, that's what a lot of things boil down to, regardless of the stories we tell ourselves. We like to look at all sorts of conflicts as good versus evil and heroes against villains, which is hopefully, obviously, absurd. Conflicts tend to be about material well-being possibly being uh, leveraged by a few key powerful figures to prosecute war or what have you. But what are rallying cries about? It's always about our food, our wealth, our children, and the terrible threat that the other poses to them. And even the Dread Empire, what actually motivates their wars? Our food, our delicious, delicious biryani. I think you are right. I think that point is important but the fact that the gods above and below can lay a finger on the scales to use a term that shows up very frequently especially later on in individual conflicts you know to make sure the hero triumphs so to make sure the villain escapes to make sure ogres are very cool when they die I wonder if these material conflicts, these mundane sources of of conflict are not simply the set dressing created by the gods as a means of forcing conflict. So many of these material problems, so many of these basic necessities are caused, are lost because of named. It's not the wastelander peasants it's not the duni who are destroying all of price and forcing a a shortage of of food it's the dread empress it's the black knight it's the you know that sort of thing It, it these scarcities are caused by people who are influenced by an aspect of themselves that is given to them by the gods so there's our ladder that i've just built that was unnecessarily complicated but i think you follow these conflicts maybe wouldn't need to exist in the way that they they, these wouldn't be an excuse for war if the excuse wasn't there so yes there's a mundanity to it there's a a a relatability to it because it, it feels like how real conflicts happen but with this much magic in the world with this much power people have the fact that they use that for conflict pretty much exclusively feels like it's got some weight coming from the outside even if it's sort of butterfly affected into reality 
I think you're absolutely right. There's a fantastical element to it all, even though it's grounded in concerns we can share, which makes it, or at least contributes to it being a story worth reading, something we can place ourselves in, can see ourselves experiencing. There are the magnifications uh, provided by supernatural and extra-normal, extraordinary, to use the Dungeons & Dragons 3.5 term, forces. And that's really cool. In our world as well, it's usually the rich, the powerful, who manufacture conflicts for their own gain out of scarcities. But here, there's just a reason for it other than personal depravity. And that's fun. I, of course, cannot but agree. I, you know, we're talking about the the different layers of realistic, of, of of relatability and this meta story and that's kind of how that'll progress for most of this entire uh series of books um i think that'll be a pretty constant theme one thing that is kind of related to that is um death that takes that is mentioned very early on in this chapter it happens off screen he's he's built up to be a villain lowercase v here you know story role not uh in universe role he's built up to be this this villain he's the antagonist all these things and cat sleeps through his hanging and that's fine his his role in the story his his reason for existing within the text ends when he is dragged away at the end of party he you know he's in universe he was this important person and he had all of these reasons for existing and this evil ruler who is just exploiting for exploiting a region for tax purposes very relatable very understandable but he's still in a story about stories and so it's very easy to just eh, his his point is over he's done so he just quietly dies away from the action and we move on and he isn't really important anymore they don't make a big deal there's not a big we're going to go watch Mazes hanging. We're not going to hear his last words. We're not going to uh, spend a chapter philosophizing with him as uh, uh, as he's getting ready to be hanged. Nope. He's just, oh, remember that guy? Yeah, he's dead now. And what swift justice it is, too, though. In two days? Yes, in two days, a perhaps relatively minor figure in an important family is simply removed from the picture. I do admire the Dread Empire's dedication to a fair and speedy trial or at least a speedy trial or as we see later on at least two trials they're very trying and even trial is definitely a stretch so a speedy application of quote-unquote justice they're fast i think that's the important thing here they're very efficient speaking of doing things quickly catherine does note in the very same paragraph uh, where she addresses that black is there giving her her homework that she'd missed the hanging that well she says quote i took the high road and decided not to comment on the fact that the green-eyed man this dear listeners is an epithet you will regularly see given to the black knight the green-eyed man already had a cup of wine in hand before the noon bell had even rung and though she is not yet who she becomes it is wonderful to see the father imitating the future daughter. That is how lineages work. The parents imitate the future actions of their children. That's it's very powerful. The the two have, or future cats and present cats, to be fair, and Black do have similarities beyond the need for 
some drug. They discussed the High Lords briefly, and we were talking about Tracy efficiency. And Cat really takes a Gordian knot solution to the High Lords. There's not much conversation before she immediately leaps to, why don't we just kill them all? She hears about all the politics, about why things are the way they are, and acknowledges that there's some complicating factors here, and still falls back on, what if they weren't around anymore? Black, of course, doesn't disagree, but can't act on that for external reasons that we kind of get into here. Uh, it's the uh, <laughs> the name dream that Cat just woke up from seems to have already been forgotten, or if not forgotten, discarded as being a useful bit of advice or critique on how she exists, because she really is just jumping into these people are inconvenient. They should die. I had, of course, noted the uh, immediate hatred for the High Lords, and I think you covered the point well. I don't know if you've abandoned this cataloging because it is so constant, but I'm required to note, a little after that conversation, Catherine uses the phrase, weeping heavens again, and she needs to get better, or worse. She needs to get worse. I can't handle this. Yeah, I did notice. Uh, at this point, I'm just waiting for a shift, frankly. Then I will be here forever the Lonely Cataloger, which is not the name I thought I would receive. However, I do, in my cataloging, want to note that we have our first mention of three, or pardon me, our first mention of four languages, one after the other three. And I think it's time to play our favorite game on this podcast. What percentage of our audience will we alienate with our pronunciations? I refuse to go any direction but Mthethwa. And I hope you agree with me on that one. Of course. How about the T language? I have said Tagreb or Tagrebi. Okay, I'm also thinking Tagrebi. Uh, though I overpronounce the A that time. I would also say Tagrebi because I'm an American. And so I won't say Tagrebi, I'll say Tagrebi. How about the lower tongue? I can f see a number of pronunciations, especially considering what you want to do with the vowel cluster and the letter Z, which in Italian or German is a TS sound. I, I, for this one, go back and forth between Misen and Mietzen. I lean away from the T in there because this is very obviously modeled after Latin and having that TZ sound doesn't fit in my mind. You are more of a scholar of Latin, or at the very least scholar of Rome, than I am. Uh, have you studied Latin? Very little. So you still might be more of a scholar of Latin than I am. What did they do with the letter Z? I don't actually recall it in any Latin I can think of off the top of my head. Did they have it early on? I'm trying to think myself. I don't know. I don't think so. That said, I think I am influenced by one of the languages I do speak, that is to say German, and I'm tempted towards lower Mietzen more than Miesen, but I recognize that it's kind of an infeasible pronunciation. Sounds like we will probably we'll probably stick with Miesen or Mietzen and just Either way. kind of shrug our way past the fact that it's Latin. Though speaking of romantic tongues. That of the Principate is not named in this chapter, but Catherine does call their tongue hellishly complicated, which I find deeply amusing because as an American, I have been raised to enjoy dunking on the French. The dominant tongue in the Principate 
does appear to be French with German in the Nort. And okay, I never studied French until I first had a degree in Spanish, but I have to say hellishly complicated seems like a bit of an exaggeration, Catherine. Especially since she speaks... I, I don't know. I, I think I don't know that the Principate speaks the equivalent of French, actually, despite it being, you know, France and the Holy Roman Empire and that sort of thing, just because a number of the place names and people names definitely sound French, but I don't know if I'm getting too into the weeds here, but with Mitzin being Latin equivalent and they never actually engaged with Proser, it seems strange to then say that Proserin is French since French and Latin are a little more closely tied than these two languages are, which is really just to say, sure, French isn't that complicated, but it maybe it would be if you weren't coming at it from another romance-ish language. Granted. But the fun one is Orcish, except let's not call How it Orcish. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> I would go in an anglicized pronunciation of this as Karsum. So I expect that the KH actually, at the very least, must be aspirated, which is a differentiation I'm not really capable of distinguishing. And I would even be willing to suggest throatier noises for that if you really wanted. Go ahead and say Kharsum. I don't care. I won't. Yeah, I, I also just say Kharsum. I don't know that there's we have enough information really to try to, I don't know, localize it to a real world language with the information we have it wouldn't surprise me if it were supposed to be i don't know mongolian or or something like that just by dint of being ah the plains this the steppe people anyone listening has taken the little bits of Khartoum that are present in the story and connected them to a real world tongue please write in i'm very curious and i assume you are too absolutely i would love to know a little bit more there May I have room for a brief rant? Please. I had intended to lead into this by saying, now that we've talked about politics and names and things like that, I look forward to the main point of this episode, which will be linguistics. And I know that there's more to it than simply, here are the languages listed. So the floor is yours. Two problems with languages here, or if not two problems, there are at least two points that require addressing because they seem to be predicated upon misconceptions and extreme modernisms, neo-modernisms, if you will, in the way language is done in the world. Uh, and the first one I want to address is going to be Black's claim that uh, the amount of time that it must take to learn language, quote, is less than you think if you start young enough, he cut in. So probably my first job as an adult was teaching a language. I am still a language teacher. I have a passion for it, and I've studied applied linguistics under some of the modern greats, and I'm deeply blessed to have done so. But the claim that children learn language better than adults, which is usually the entirety of the claim people make. Children learn languages so well. Oh, yes, I wish I had learned Spanish, but, you know, we didn't start in school till I was 14 and at that point, well, neuroelasticity is gone. You, you can't learn language at that point, which is stupid. Children have certain advantages in learning languages that adults don't have, sure. If you take a baby and you expose them to only Cantonese, five years later, they'll be speaking 
a relatively weak Cantonese and a pretty good accent. Ten years later, those will be speaking fine Cantonese in a fine accent, without exception other than major linguistic issues, speech delays, impediments, what have you. But if you take an adult and you give them a one-hour class on introductory Cantonese to keep it equal, though I really wish I had gone with the language I have any training in at this point instead, but within an hour, you can have them doing simple greetings, basic communications of how they're doing, a little cultural knowledge. An infant can't do that for over a year, over two years, over three years sometimes. Talk to a three-year-old and they'll say things like, I catched the ball, which is great. They're languaging in a way that helps them communicate, but they're not doing it properly. You give a bored high schooler a chart and two weeks to say for the test, and they'll be able to do irregular past tense forms moderately well. If you put them in an immersive environment, they'll be speaking very well. Adults don't necessarily learn language better than children. Of course not. Adults are focusing on less. Children, three-year-olds are also learning how to walk still. Yeah, they walk around fine. Look how much they fall over. But an adult can make so much progress so fast, especially in real-world environments. And up until the point that brain activity, brain quality, your ability to learn is actually declining significantly because of age and the early onset of senility, you're going to learn language fine, I promise. Languages aren't hard. They're very, very big. They're so big, it feels like they're hard. But no, they're just so many little pieces, I promise you. Point number one out of the way. Anything to say? <laughs> oh, I didn't know if you were going right into rant number two. No, it's it's. I think the important distinction is children and adults learn languages differently. They have different advantages. Children are coming at it from a blank slate and can't help but learn a language in order to communicate, whereas the vast majority of the time, adults are learning a language as a thing they're doing in addition to all the other things adults are doing. And I think that that's why children seem to learn language so well, because, oh, I never formally taught, and look, he speaks so well. Yeah, he has to. That That's, that's how it works. Um, but on the flip side, they're not actively learning. They're trying to, I don't know, roll the truck down the slide. <laughs> and uh, everything, all the language they pick up is incidental. They don't know that they're trying to figure out the irregular verb forms. They just hear adults repeat the words enough and say, well, I guess to mimic them, I'll do this. And I'm more clearly understood if I do this. So there are advantages and disadvantages, yes. The, but for the most part, yeah, the children learn languages better is... Uh, as somebody who has watched a child try to learn a first language, they're not that good at it. <laughs> Mind you, I'm not saying EE -E is wrong or a fool. I'm saying that Black is uttering a very common belief in a time before neurolinguistic study had progressed to anything, before even the study of education got to anything. Our understanding of education, even now, in a 2022, kind of feels like the understanding of psychology under Freud. We are making it scientific. We are learning more and more. But the field is actually shockingly nascent, considering we've been trying to teach people things for 100,000 years. No, education started with the Greeks. Ah, uh, yes, I forgot. The first and most important white people who invented everything in the entire world. Yes. Exactly. Yes. And... Regarding the what Black is saying, actually, I have the beginnings of a thought, the 
tatters of what might become an actual idea about why black is saying this and how it fits into this story specifically rather than just uh understanding of how people learn languages generally but i think it's going to more closely tie in with your second rant if i am not missing my guess drastically so maybe we head into that monolingualism isn't real or at least wasn't real monolingualism is unnatural and a weird invention so much shorter rant okay okay so look i was born and raised in the midwestern united states Congratulations, a little more lore unlocked. Where I lived, who I lived around, the community I came from, completely and utterly English-based. The most foreign language I ever saw was when, at the Christmas Eve service in church, we did the first verse of Silent Night in German. That was because of German ethnic dominance in the region, even though nobody spoke German, including myself. I grew up in a world with no other languages around, and I didn't start studying any foreign language beyond a children's introduction to Spanish type of uno, dos, tres uh, accent, fully intended, until sixth grade. But that's not how the world is in many places, and it's certainly not how the world has been. In Even in ancient times, when it was back in antiquity, in antique times, if I may, when it was harder to get from one place to another, when the world was so much bigger, languages intermingled in any cosmopolitan sphere constantly. If we look back to, say, the time of Jesus of Nazareth, people in ancient, is that still appropriate? Yeah, it is. From Julius Caesar's yeah. around, it's ancient. Yes. People in ancient Judea may have spoken a form of Aramaic as their dominant language, as their primary daily insular community tongue. But they had to communicate with Roman officials, with people coming through to see the wonder of the world, the great temple rebuilt by Herod the Great. And what would those people speak? Well, the dominant language of the Roman Empire, which was, of course, Greek. And it didn't matter if someone was, quote unquote, fluent in Greek, because fluency is a really weird concept that can't really be nailed down in any way. But it was important that they could communicate prices, that they could communicate permissions and dangers and whatever legal nonsense had to be communicated, directions. There had to be utility in many languages. You can see this in tourist cities today in, well, we have a primarily English-speaking audience, though much less American than I feared it would be. And you can see this, say, in Prague, where the dominant language is a relatively small, relatively sidelined Slavic tongue, Czech, which I've only just begun studying. Do not ask me to say anything in it. But if you go to Charles Bridge and see the commerce and discussion on it, people use English as an in-between tongue as they try to negotiate between negotiate prices for a CD or an overpriced trinket because tourism uh, between a German or an Italian or a Japanese person and the Czech person selling it. And the even though English occupies an unprecedentedly enormous position in global discourse, uh, no longer a lingua franca, but the linguist frankist, if I may butcher language so, and I may. You may. That's how it's always been. People have always used in-between languages, used sets of linguistic resources that are the only sequestered parts of a, so to speak, language that they don't 
had the ability to communicate regularly in. And the idea that Catherine has lived in a world that's entirely monolingual, especially under imperial education, is just wild to me, particularly in such a technologically stunted world. And I do mean stunted because the Ganams. And unlike Black saying something that, sure, what what would he know? This one, this one gets me. And just read The Invention of Monolingualism by David Gramling. That monograph. It'll take care of you. I had my push to talk held down so long my screen just turned black. <laughs> so, I obviously agree with what you're saying because most of what you're saying isn't actually up for disagreement. It's just how the world worked. But this wouldn't be... We wouldn't need both of us here if I wasn't going to disagree with some things. So what you said is very true for our world. And if we take what Black is saying now as true to some extent, even if not entirely factual, it may be that the practical guide setting that Kalernia is different than our world in this way and there may be some actual reasons for that and the ones that the, there are a couple that come to mind that may be the case so the world is very obviously even just at this point in the story divided into distinct separate cultural spheres that are more than just where a government has influence there's the good kingdom of Callow, that's the battleground between good and evil. There's the evil empire. There's Proser. There, you know, they each have their own story attached to them that means that they have to stay autonomous to some extent, even if there's conquests and crusades and the, the like. These these polities exist not just because the government has the power to keep them, but because the ruts ground into reality demand that there be a good kingdom against which the evil empire swarms, I guess. And these divisions, I think, probably serve to limit cultural exposure. It's propaganda like what we see in the real world, but more real and more universal. We're told, you know, throughout our throughout American history, there have been a number of evil empires against which Americans have bravely fought or what have you. And that's propaganda. It's it's whatever. Various levels of truth to any level of that. Here you've got an evil empire, an explicitly evil empire, a an objectively evil empire within the world. I think that's a layer there. You also have at a really meta level a fantasy setting, a setting where these stories can take place, where stories like the first example that comes to mind is the mirror night, where that can take place. You need static environs. You need a village that never grows into a town. You need a city that stands on a hill and never outgrows the hill to become a metropolis because it's the city on the hill. You need a town that borders this lake and never becomes a major port town because it needs to be isolated. And I so I think there are story reasons capital S in this case, story reasons for isolationism, cultural isolationism. Sure, you have nobles who speak multiple languages. You have merchants who, traveling traders, people like that who absolutely speak multiple languages. That It would be absurd to say that's not the case. But for the average person, it very well could be that there's a reason that they aren't exposed to languages outside of their own. Dialects, sure, but languages outside of their own, maybe not. There's 
another reason potentially individuals in this universe have exaggerated power black isn't the president or the vice president he's that and also personally capable of fighting an army you know he's has a name that lets him command people better he has he has powers that let him influence the world around him and when he's in Prace, he probably typically speaks lower meets him and when he is then in the borders of praise where they may have some bleed into other areas you know whether that's with karsum or uh, with the orcs with Kalo, with uh Tigrevi, whatever it is he's speaking that language and because of the outsized influence he wields the language he speaks probably gains favoritism and while that doesn't mean that people won't speak other languages a language having dominance over a wide area is going to mean that all of the different languages the more localized languages probably just aren't as recognized especially by black finally this could just be a propaganda thing by black saying oh yes you know this is everybody speaks the one language in the empire and that's just the imperial and that seems like more of a stretch to me but eh, it could be at least part of it and there's the end of my my counter rant, I suppose. <laughs> Relatively brief, but you bring up good points. I just get upset by how people perceive language incorrectly. Perceive it like I do. Also, language doesn't exist. Language is pretend. There's no difference between a language and a dialect. And every time you do something that the official grammar say you shouldn't do, an angel gets its wings. Death to prescriptivism. And speaking of languages, origins, and historical links... I think it might be time for Deicide and Applied Blasphemy. Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is our segment where we discuss comments and questions from you, our dear listeners. We have falsely assumed the thrones of your gods, and we invite you in this segment to challenge us for the mantles. You will not succeed, and we will continue on unceasing and unerring. Today, we actually have two comments to discuss from our listeners. First, we have an email from listener Sean, who provides for us, honestly, some excellent context in things that we just, between the two of us, don't have a great background in, some Middle Eastern culture and language. Sean points out that many of the elements in the story that we haven't exactly been able to place with our frankly, more Eurocentric educations are drawn from Middle Eastern history, culture, and languages. Uh, I think probably the most interesting example we were given was that of the Jerusalem stone. Sean lets us know that in Jerusalem, you're only allowed to build with stone from a certain quarry called Jerusalem stone, which has since run dry. This is updated to Caesarea stone, but the parallel for lore is pretty obvious and that's very interesting and something I didn't know. We've included Sean's full comments in the show notes. Feel free to write in with more things you noticed that we, in our myopic mortality, have failed to see, never forgetting our deity. We also had a second email from listener Erdi, who initially wrote to us recently about Kat's drinking problem. And in this email, Erdi talks about named history, some things that we maybe overlooked, some things that we didn't dive in deep enough on. He talks about the relationship between fate and names and how Black 
maybe has a bit of a misunderstanding or of not a full grasp of how those two things relate. Um, he brings in some excellent points about the hierarch and the bard representing fate here and how fate can be beaten by an individual, in this case the augur. It's frankly excellent stuff and exactly the kind of thing that we hope that our listeners can provide for us. Finally, we would like to address some controversy that has sprung up, especially on the Discord for the series, about our about a perceived lack of respect from the two of us towards the great monsters of the age, such as the Grilgrim. We write, he bad, fight us. No argument from me. But in all seriousness, we look forward to his apparition in the flow of the story, where we can discuss more nuancedly the burdens of attempting to do good and the inherent contradictions in trying to walk a righteous path in a wretched world. But he does so poorly. This has been Deicide and Applied Blasphemy. You have slung your slings and arrows, and we stand untarnished, unvanquished, and unamused. Well, should we move? Oh, we've got more to go. I was going to say, should we move forward with what, I don't know, three or four listeners we still have left after our lingualism discussion? Three or four very cool listeners. Yes. We get just a little bit about the goblins. Obviously, the the bilingualism of the goblins is a a thing. We've already spoken on that. There's a mention of the matrons, which is obviously pretty important. Um, Just worth bringing it up that they're showing up here in the story. Um, Yes, we, we get just a little bit of the matrons. And then we do get our introduction to aspects. Black guesses that Cat's aspects will be useful. One of them will be useful. He's obviously referencing learn here. And Cat recognizes the idea, the three something, but she calls them the three sins, which is taken directly from the House of Light, the the Book of All Things, what have you. And apparently <laughs> apparently Black's not familiar with this term, which is, I have to say, a little surprising. Black is one of those people that anytime he doesn't know something it catches me off guard but i just i like the idea that these that because the name is villainous these the aspects are sins it's, hmm, it's a lot of modern conception of what a sin is is action based you do a sin or you have sinned or modern western i suppose i can't speak for how that term if it's used is perceived elsewhere um whereas in this, it's treated more as an intrinsic part of <laughs> the the name, since they're equating to aspects. And the line that Cat quotes is, um, Black asks three sins. He repeated, sounding somewhere between puzzled and curious. And quoting from memory, Cat says, And on all those who take up the banner of evil, the heavens will bestow three sins planting the seed of their downfall in the name of justice. The sins, the aspects, are bestowed upon the person. They're not actions that the person has taken that are that they then bear with them for the rest of their life or any number of ways you could metaphysically handle this. They're bestowed, and they're both understood, I think, to be somewhat power, a source of power, since it's sort of this bestowal, but it's also their weakness, which Black sort of alludes to with, you know, if you 
cleave too tightly to your aspects to to the aspects of your name uh you can sort of get subsumed into the story and lose the ability to do anything else um and also it's i I don't know it's definitely coming from a place of these are the enemy and so the things that they have these unique things that they have are all bad and i just uh, looking at the aspects as something like that and only being something that the villains have since um black has to clarify that heroes get them as well and there's some interesting things there later on it's interesting how that bit of name lore sort of percolated down into this understanding that's passed along and that a lot of the other details are lost in the telling to to reach the point where you know the relatively well educated but the orphan street urchin somewhere between somewhere between those depending on how pit fighty she's being knows about these things and what what level she knows about Though, given her sporadic attendance and even more intermittent attention at the House of Light, you do have to wonder, really, how much is out there if she's already got hints of that much? And mm -hmm, Please. I was just going to say, very fair. She even explicitly says, uh, quote, it was always more fun to hear about what the villains were getting up to, or were up to, end quote. She paid more attention to the sins than to anything else reopen quote what the villains were up to than getting edified on the importance of the 17 cardinal virtues and i have to wonder uh given that she's right about the three sins or at least three aspects is she right about there being 17 cardinal virtues i realize that in say catholic tradition there are seven holy virtues opposed to the seven deadly sins, which is a much smaller, more manageable number. But also seven is, you know, the Christian magic number. Uh, Seven days in the week that God created the world. Uh, Seven, what else is seven? There's a lot of biblical sevens. I mean, it's not just Christian, it's Judeo-Christian because you've got like the the cycle of Jubilee is based on seven years. And not just uh, Judeo-Christian even, is it not a Roman magical number too, city on seven hills? Very true. So perhaps there are indeed 17 cardinal virtues in the Callowin or even House of Light cosmology. But since it's just such a big and can I say weird because it's prime? Prime numbers are weird, right? They're not quite natural. They don't, man was never meant to invent them. Uh, (laughs) I'm just curious are there 17 cardinal virtues? EE, if you ever hear this, I would love a list. Yeah. We'll put it in the podcast as exclusive content. 17 is just such a large number of cardinal virtues. It's so many things that are set apart as being the most important of them. And why 17? I I don't recall the number 17 showing up anywhere, so it doesn't feel like it's got a powerful symbolism. Is it more, I don't know, Ten Commandments-y in that it's, well, I've got... 17 things there are 17 things you got to know and it just so happens that that's the number that was landed on rather than you know being related to a holy number specifically there's a moment of not foreshadowing but rather for ignorance uttered by black as they move on towards the necromantic finale a word which etymologically means death divination catherine recognizes that her senses are improved that she can see in blinding sunlight after leaving a dark hallway faster and black notices and says to her that she will see better in the dark though nowhere as well as goblins do and if only he knew what she would be able to do with darkness yeah 
I I also I, <laughs> yeah. Anytime anytime darkness is brought up around cat, there's always there always feels like there's a little bit of a wink in there. Um, but I also brought up this scene. Um, I thought it was interesting because not for this scene specifically, but this power that you know we talk about, we hear about named having good eyesight, especially when it deals with darkness um, and distance. But that's not really important here. Um, but specifically here, talking about recovery from the stunning of bright light, and I found that to be an odd ability for named to have in that it seems to take away a pretty commonly used it seems to take away the possibility of a well-known well-used well-trod trope it isn't uncommon to have the hero blinded or the villain blinded by a, a flash of light by you know by the hero in various stories and this seems to undercut the ability for that to take place often in colonia i don't know not immunity but resistance to blinding feels odd to me because of how many stories have a moment or longer than a moment of blinding being the deciding factor in a fight or the part of the fight where it goes one way and then the hero overcomes the blindness to yada 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 for a soft reconsideration of that of course Wonderful. You fool! Have you considered what sort of light villains deal with? Yes, bright sunlight doesn't work so well, but that's not the kind of light that the White Knight was throwing. That's not the kind of light that they're dealing with on a regular basis. As far as heroes go, I don't know, maybe they don't see better in the light? Maybe it's just the scale of things? Goblin fire is bright? I don't know. But for villains, oh, they have light. They have light. A fair point. Do you get the joke I said soft rebuttal and then I started with you fool? You're not actually a fool. Yes, I got the joke. <laughs> we talked a little bit about aspects and how they are bestowed by the gods and or tied to your name and vary based on who has the role. Black also kind of slips in something that, frankly, I had pretty much forgotten about by the time this story actually ended uh, on my first read-through. At some level, a number of aspects for various heroes and villains are determined by your counterparts' aspects. The example here is conquer and protect between the Black Knight and the White Knight, in theory. It's interesting. I, I, I think this is more evidence, not that it's needed since it's explicitly stated, of the fact that the good and evil sides are basically these forces being set up and the the gods above and below to directly com combat each other. And we hear about this a lot more later, but if one side leans too heavily on the scales, the other side gets to do something in response. And having aspects be that something is interesting because aspects are such a, I don't know, permanent, immutable part of a name. They're in response to a specific thing, but if you have a black knight with conquer and a white knight with protect and the white knight wins quickly and the black knight is dead, that protect is obviously broadly useful, but it's no longer in direct response to something. I don't know exactly where I'm going with that piece of it, but I just think it's very, um, very interesting how much influence someone on the other side can have over such a intrinsic part of who people become when they have a role i did this in episode four and i will do it again thank you for your reading i think it's a step up from how i read the line myself 
when Catherine says, why do I have a feeling that for every evil role with conquer in it, there's a good one with protect and black agrees indirectly with her. I read that more as not the evil role has conquered, therefore the good one has protect. But, well, you know, evil roles can get conquer and good ones get stuff like protect. There is a general equivalency, but not necessarily a case-specific one. But no, you're right. Of course, obviously, there's a case-specific one. And that's a nice balance to the game of the gods. And I think when the White Knight wins and Conquer is defeated and gone. Of course, Protect is broadly useful, but not specifically anymore. But remember also how many stories really do trickle off to an end. Either heroes soon find themselves dying. I think the lifespan of Named is probably pretty limited much of the time. Or their role gradually trickles away as even Black's trickled away. Yes, he was weaving a story of his own, but he lost his name and never gained another because his role as Black Knight was done, despite his continued importance. But there aren't too many saints of swords walking around, or too many, forgive me on this plural, but I think Pilgra walking around. Thank the gods, as is mandatory. Tariq is terrible. Worst guy ever. I hate him. I completely agree. He's the worst. When they arrive at the stables, uh, or actually before they arrive at the stables, here's the line in the text. I smelled the royal stables before I saw them. Manure and animals had a distinct stench to them, especially in large concentrations. And Catherine supposes that a mage would have figured out a spell to eliminate that odor. And this is a poor orphan girl who has seen the way the world was, like Eurydice in Hadestown. She knows the hierarchies. She knows the inequalities. And she thinks that a mage is going to find the time and profit in... She thinks a mage is going to find the time to ease the odor of a working class place. And she thinks that those in power would spare the expense to have it applied regularly. The stables are going to stink because no one important has to go there. Because if they need something, the groom will bring it out. I also tripped up over that line a little bit and kind of just shook my head. It's, <laughs> yes, Kat, and also, why don't the mages have self-cleaning stables? And why aren't the mages creating free housing? Because it's better for the mages and people in power to not do those things, specifically. Kat's getting there. She's learning. And soon, she will be learning. Um, in the stables, just before they enter the stables and a bit after, there are a couple of mentions of the of Kalo's famous cavalry uh, that no longer exists. The knights are mentioned. And I know that comes up a couple of times. It's fun to see references to this lost glory of Kalo, these, this history, this piece of history where Kalo used to be the best in the world at this thing, and it's gone. The fact that it comes up as often as it does, I think we're... I, I know it's been mentioned before, and it's mentioned twice in this chapter. It's clearly the foreshadowing that we read it as now. Uh, it's clearly intentionally the foreshadowing that we read it as now, rather than just being a bit of scene setting, I think. Um, it, it makes the knowledge that we're getting heading towards the Broken Bells more fun, I guess. Absolutely. But, as we said at the very beginning, it also mirrors a real-world obsession with glories of the past mm. we not to again bring up my country of origin but there is a great sense of eternal military glory in the united states and 
the last war that we didn't run away from in the end was over in 1945. But we're the great military power. We're amazing. It's one of the great pieces of national identity. And we cling to that like the Callowans to their cavalry. Speaking of cavalry, before we get into the meat of the horse... Nope, that's where the sentence ends. Before we get into the meat of the horse, Cap measures how tall a horse is feet, like some kind of amateur who's never heard of horses before. She's Callowan. What is this about? I had not seen that, and that is striking. She says when she finds the horse that is sick, uh, the horse had a dark chestnut coat, though it was matted with sweat. I guessed it must have stood over five feet tall when standing up. Five feet tall? Come on, cat. One minute, doing a quick... A hand is an SI unit of measurement of length. Hand is four. Okay, so that's three. So like 15 hands, she means. It does mean that. <laughs> but this horse that she measures in feet does turn out to be pretty important. Weirdly important to her psychological state. Right. To uh, Just to get it out there, she kills and helps raise this horse into zombie major spoilers the first and there is quite a bit of discussion back and forth about necromancy here and i'm sure we both have some things to say but i do want to talk about the fact that necromancy is at both by what cat is concerned about and what black explicitly says explicitly capital e evil even if that necromancy is done to an animal, there's it's not the interacting with human souls that's the problem. It's necromancy itself. And I'm wondering why it is evil in this setting. I always find necromancy of this type, of raising the dead, in various fantasy settings, it borders it, it varies from roughly a neutral thing you can do, and it just depends on what you do with the undead to horrifically evil one of the worst things you can do and obviously in colonia it's evil why is that is this a perversion of the natural order style of evil is it a backwards categorization i guess is it well villains do necromancy therefore necromancy is evil the other thought i had and i just i like these i don't know more esoteric reasons for necromancy being evil i wonder if it has something to do with either just at the base level association with a specific villain um, up north, the Hidden Horror, or if it has something to do with Colernia having a concern about disposing of corpses properly, either because of the Hidden Horror or another evil force that we don't really get to interact with much, but I'm always curious about with the, uh, the Chain of Hunger. If you aren't disposing of your corpses then that's basically just food for them i don't know the reason for necromancy being evil is fascinating to me and uh, there just are so many options and i don't know if you have any thoughts on that didn't until you brought it up but i got richer and richer thoughts as you continued speaking right as far as the chain of hunger excuse goes are orcs orcs are associated with evil now they align with the empire mm -hmm. it's a geographic and military convenience i think uh, i don't believe and i would be loath to believe and start taking a lot more issues with the text that there's actually a racial component 
to good and evil. Like, I realize that gods are not made to be perfect, infallible, moral paragons by any means, but, like, I thought we got over that 20 years ago, and I don't think that that's what's going on. The orcs eat the dead, and I don't think that's taken so much as a great moral evil, but rather something that is naturally horrifying to most other uh, intelligent races, and therefore only those that are willing to commit other abominations, he's actually on a moral scale, being willing to take them. But that would mean that part wouldn't make necromancy evil, because proper disposal of a corpse then isn't necessarily a deeply moral thing, unless orcs eating a corpse is seen as natural and appropriate to them, and that's special. But eh. but you talked about Trismegistus, and this is total theory. We wouldn't know without word of God confirmation, but what if necromancy we're not made evil by association with him, per se, but rather we're made evil by the story of him, by perfecting the art beyond what anyone had, by accomplishing something with it on an abominable, catastrophic scale beyond anything before or since. Did necromancy become diegetically, story-wise, linked to him in a way that makes it inextricable makes it inseparable from his evil. He he made it his brand and now it's bad. That I think that the association with the the dead king is the one that's the most interesting to me and the one that I hope is the case, whichever direction that flows in, whether he's a villain rather than a neutral name because necromancy is already evil or necromancy became evil because of him or you know what you're talking any layer of that i i think is interesting to have the main guy who practices the art be the reason for it being what it is but like you said i don't recall there being any actual textual evidence one way or the other there we can pay attention to that and see if we can build up more evidence or claim especially when we get to the chapters where they are going through his memories frozen in shards of time um or the history of his life not his memories rather see if there's any more evidence one way or the other but uh for now i i really don't know absolutely and my last comment you were debating whether necromancy was itself evil or a moral neutral and i wanted to say necromancy could even in fact have been a moral good and that still wouldn't make up for what he did. But then I remembered how the gods above weigh atrocities committed by their favorite little abomination, the Grey Pilgrim. And no, if they decide necromancy was good, who cares how many people the dead king killed? If he's their precious little boy like Tariq, he can get away with anything. Doesn't matter. I hate the Pilgrim. And speaking of good, the last thing I have for this chapter is there's um, there's a bit of doctrine uh for the house of light for the the gods above that we get here that i think is interesting cat says oh important she says gods plural not gods above so she now it's not specifically the heavens or the gods above it's all of them gods i as good as renounced any chance of getting into the heavens after i died just by claiming a name on the wrong side of the fence so this was positively trifling in comparison end quote the heavens are an afterlife which as Westerners, I think we assume when we hear the type, the name, the word, um, but you know the fact that it's explicitly a place that is gate kept. There's, it's not something that anybody gets into. It's a you have to do certain things to earn access to the heavens, 
we don't really know what those details are aside from maybe the 17 virtues and also don't do necromancy and very much don't be a villain but it's a little bit of house of light doctrine um to add to the the little bits we're getting here and there especially this chapter which has actually been pretty dense with it he says that but is not squire itself an ambivalent name potentially a squire could become i don't know a knight errant or an errant knight whichever one yeah but i understand what she's saying because her squireship her squire her squirility is there it is plainly an evil apprenticeship yes. so i won't argue with her on that but the name itself, that's flexible. The name itself can go to either side, but I think any, rather, the role itself can go to either side, but any individual claimant to the name is going to lean one way or the other, or maybe towards neutrality. They'll, there's an association with one of the sides, or explicitly neither. Cat's Cat would be the Black Knight Squire, so. Exactly. And then she embraces her damnation and is present for the raising of the dead. She didn't really uh, animate the corpse. She was there while Black did the thing. But I love the way Black frames it. There, you may well recall the discussion and theories circling around Kat and her future with all of the necromancy she does, Also, especially the auto-necromantic works. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll soon see her begin performing, which I really love for her because it's both kind of her thing and not part of her story and i'm glad there are things that can be that way but when they're about to animate the horse first the horse is killed and then black's brows furrowed and now for the tricky part is catherine just a really gifted necromancer later in the story she just taps the dead and brings them up mid-battle she sees a dread emperor the spider queen fall and says i'm gonna keep that come to life and be mine i think there are two things at play first for much of her of those later ones she has the knight and i think stealing a soul that has passed on or stealing a corpse back from death is a way that she could frame things to be a very good necromancer at that point point. and secondly maybe the tricky part for black here is just that he's channeling through cat in some way rather than doing it himself and maybe cat is just a good necromancer and black doesn't focus on it because he has other strengths could be as simple as that yeah it's worth noting that black is name wise in the raw power of his name even though he has really embraced it and made the most of it he is a relatively weak black knight and catherine after she loses her name just continues to swell with power and then with one very big drop off when she loses winter but a drop off with some clear gains but she was at her most raw powerful when she was at that verge of apotheosis herself but it is worth noting black is extremely to make it a metaphor extremely skilled but not terribly talented he's earned and he works hard for everything he has and Catherine works for it don't get me wrong but she's got a lot of power stores behind her by the end she blacks her way she you know using the trickery the scheming the intelligence the meta knowledge into getting that power but once she has it yes she's absurdly powerful and i think it's worth mentioning that black's comparative weakness to a number of other names is i think intentional on his part it's sort of what he talked about last chapter where you can 
draw on your aspects and that's when you're at your most powerful but the more you do that the more you are bound by the nature of your name and most of black's influence most of black's power in the general sense rather than the specifically you know name power sense comes from his ability to step outside of stories to manipulate them to control what story is happening and so if he were a powerful black knight with able to not just have his soldiers march extra but you know conquer the world in a night or what have you whatever nonsense black knights could do at their peak he would not be nearly so effective or long-lived that's just that's not the type of power he uses so i think i think it's intentional that he's a relatively weak name when it comes to direct name power name application of name power i hadn't considered and again thank you that's enlightening and you're right of course and also thank you for describing conquer uh, as making his soldiers march extra that's fantastic i mean the time where he uses conquer he uses it to make his soldiers mark march extra and he gets really sleepy when he does it i i don't know what you're trying to to imply when you're calling me out for saying that that's explicitly what happens all I'm saying is I thought it would be impossible to make merch on a podcast that is itself a derivative work. But in <laughs> fact, no, no, no. A shirt, a black shirt with just white text that reads, I'm a make your soldiers march extra. We'll sell millions to our couple hundred listeners. <laughs> I think you are right. I also think that that's all the time we have for today. Join us next time on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... Ironsides, regicides, and exercides. No. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Rata is a fan made podcast discussing Erratic Rata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Scary Halloween Cartoon Animation Dash, Horror Creepy Funny Pumpkin, by Sound Gallery by Dimitri Taras. Music for Deicide and Applied Blasphemy was Save As by Toby Lane. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com slash music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at TheLongPrice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make all this possible. Special thanks to our patron in Liege, always the claimant, never the named. Next week, Chapter 7, Sword. I don't know what's going on with my microphone, but we're going to keep it this way. Let's hope it gets fixed by the next episode.
Now, this might be an after credit scene, but... So, what would you say the 17 cardinal virtues of Callow might be? The first one could be stubbornness. Holding a grudge. Can we make revenge a third one? Yeah, holding a grudge and revenge and plotting the downfall of those who have wronged you and striking back against your oppressors and hating praise. There's a bit of a theme here. I think for number seven, we could have dirt. Based on what I know of Callow, it's agricultural. Oh, so number Probably eight could like just... dirt, right? Yeah, and number eight could be horse. You know you read my mind there. <laughs> Nine would be... Wait, trying to remember which direction it goes, because he did it wrong the first time. Nine would be rubies, ten would be piglets. Of course, of course. Uh, Eleven is maybe yew trees. Twelve is maybe bloodlines. They're pretty big on that for their monarchs. Or just nobility, maybe. No praisey. Nobility. But it's Calwin too. Calwin just has the... I mean, they've got nobility generally, but they... They're, they have the, a monarch, like a bloodline monarch, whereas the head of state of praise is not bloodline-based. Good monarchy, with good and major quotation marks, because they're the good king or the good queen. There you go. Thirteen is a lot like eight, which with horse. Knights, knighthood. Okay, I think that's good. Or maybe it could even be uh, suicidal charges, uh, hopeless charges, hopeless causes. Mm. I've got two, knighthood and hopeless causes. I think those are both good. Did we mention grudges already? I think that might need to be on here again. We only have it once. Yeah. Uh, that was number two. So two and 15. Mm-hmm. Got to grab two more. I really appreciate your formatting on this list, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I I have an idea for 17. I'm not sure it's the funniest one possible, but I've got a fine one. Okay, so we need a good 16 here. I don't think it's funny at all, actually. I just think it's a fine one. Okay. Uh, Maybe it's... Maybe... Hold on. I think I've pulled this. I, I figured it out. Okay. Maybe number 16 is moving slowly in armor, and that's why Kat's always so confused. Yes. And I can't believe we haven't mentioned anything related to this. The 17th and holiest of the cardinal virtues... Sorry, the 17th and cardinalist of the virtues is long prices. Of course. So we have on this list just... Picking a few random ones off here, here, I'm not going to read them all again, but we have grudge, revenge, plotting the downfall of those who have wronged you, striking back against aggressors, grudges, and long prices. I would not have any trouble naming the country here. <laughs> We've come up with a very Calloway list. So hopefully this House of Light uh, with the 17 virtues isn't the universal House of Light and isn't, because this doesn't really work for Proser particularly. <laughs> Except maybe dirt. They've got a lot of dirt up there. So anyway, now that that... She really is the only one. Hating praise, I guess. Yeah, they don't... They're very... They hate praise the way that 18th century France hated the Ottoman Empire. No, they didn't. It was fun. It was so far away. Yeah, I think Proser hates praise the way Callow hates, like, the Rattlings, the Chain of Hunger. It's... They're the bad guys over there. Eh. So we'll see if that makes the cut at the end. This is... A very long post credit scene. <laughs> I don't think we need to ever restrain ourselves. That's one of my Fair. policies. Uh, so anyway, with that out of the way. 